Welcome to the hashtag Global Public Policy Podcast, where we talk to the most influential tech policymakers and also to the business, product, and engineering teams at tech companies that drive how these companies actually operate. The goal is to have a very real dialogue about what it takes to make good and effective tech policy. I'm your host, Rebecca Liao, and I'm a Codex Fellow at the Stanford Law School. That wonderful music is by the great Jason Fung. We had planned to talk about the metaverse in this podcast. However, given the horrific war that is happening in Ukraine, we decided to talk about cryptocurrency instead, particularly in the context of financial crime, national security matters, and the use of financial regulation as a serious tool for statecraft. These are times when payment rails are not just a mechanical matter of moving money, they are a matter of life and death. We are very lucky today to have with us Jason Weinstein and Alan Cohn from the illustrious law firm Stepto in uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, I'm going to introduce them both individually now and give them, give them a chance to say hi to all of you. Uh, so Jason Weinstein serves as co-chair of Stepto's White Collar and Securities Enforcement uh, in the Blockchain and Cryptocurrency Practices. He uh, was former Deputy Assistant Attorney General of the DOJ's criminal division, where he oversaw the most significant organized crime, financial crime, cybercrime, and intellectual property theft investigations in America. Before joining the criminal division, Jason served for nearly 10 years as the assistant U.S. attorney in the U.S. attorney's offices for the Southern District of New York and the District of Maryland, where he investigated and prosecuted cases involving financial crimes, public corruption, racketeering, cybercrime, national security, and a whole host of other uh, categories. Uh, currently at Stepto, he conducts internal investigations and represents companies and individuals in high-profile criminal matters. And then with his 15 years of experience in senior positions at the DOJ, he also helped corporations and boards successfully navigate challenging government enforcement matters and defends individuals in criminal investigations and prosecutions. Welcome, Jason. And then Alan Cohn, uh, Jason's wonderful colleague at Stepto, uh, is also uh, co-leading Stepto's blockchain and cryptocurrency practice. Uh, he also co-leads the firm's national and homeland security practice and has experience across homeland security, emergency management, and emergency response services at the federal and local level. Um, for all of our listeners who are familiar with the blockchain and crypto space, you'll be glad to know that Alan serves as counsel to the Blockchain Alliance, a public-private forum established by a broad coalition of companies and organizations to help combat criminal activity on the blockchain and advises companies and investors concerning a range of issues associated with the adoption and use of blockchain and distributed ledger technology. Uh, before joining Stepto, Alan served as a career official in senior policy positions at the Department of Homeland Security for almost a decade during both the George W. Bush and Barack Obama administrations. Most recently, he was Assistant Secretary for Strategy Planning Analysis and Risk and second in charge overall of the DHS Office of Policy during the second term of the Obama administration. Welcome, Alan, and welcome to both of you. Thanks so much for being on today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Fabulous. So with uh, these two, um, major portfolios of work in government uh, having to do with cybercrime, financial crime, uh, and cryptocurrency. I'm sure 
that our listeners will have many, many things that they'd like to ask you about what's currently happening with crypto policy and what is the future of regulation in this space. So let's start with one that's sort of squarely uh, in the bailiwick of uh, financial crime issues, uh, and that is around money laundering and other white collar financial crime, uh, which has found a little bit of a home uh, in cryptocurrency and, of course, drives a lot of the concerns around the proliferation of the use of cryptocurrency around the world. So the first question I have is, uh, we saw the uh, Presidential Working Group's report on stablecoins from November of 2021, uh, where they started to outline how can we uh, regulate the use of stablecoins, particularly in, um, in these financial transactions where uh, the government is usually able to track uh, what's happening with AML and KYC practices. But with stablecoins, uh, that ability is... Um, is significantly neutered. Uh, so my first question is, what did you think of the report and some of the recommendations therein? And how can we allow for the proliferation of stable coins while preserving the global AML framework that the US has pioneered? Jason or Alan? So this, yeah. yeah. So this is Jason. I'll, I'll start off and Alan, Alan can jump in too. I, I, look, I think that the, um, as your listeners may know, in, in November, the report by the President's Working Group along with the FDIC and the Office of the Controller of the Currency, issued this report in which they um, expressed views about how stablecoins should be regulated. And the headline from the report was a recommendation that there be legislation requiring stablecoin issuers to be regulated essentially as banks. And there were some other um, uh, observations about how consumer protection and anti-money laundering and counter-terrorism financing issues should be addressed using existing authorities. And there was a, a recommendation that if there is no legislation or until there is legislation, uh, a group called the Financial Stability Oversight Council uh, should consider designated certain stablecoin issuers and arrangements as systemically important payment or clearing or settlement activities, which would allow for them to be regulated by the executive branch. The takeaway from all of that is that stablecoins are now very much on the map. Stablecoins have actually been around since about 2014. The first one issued uh, was a stablecoin called Tether. Uh, I think that stablecoins first really attracted uh, attention in the popular consciousness because Facebook uh, it announced plans a few years ago to get into the stablecoin market. And although those plans have fizzled, uh, overnight, everyone knew what a stablecoin was, even, even people who had never heard of it before. And I think what you will see, uh, especially in this environment where Congress can't seem to do anything legislatively, I think what you'll you'll see is that the existing regulators and enforcement agencies that have an interest in crypto writ large are all going to claim their piece of turf when it comes to stablecoins. So that's the SEC, the CFTC, OFAC, FinCEN, which is the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network in the Treasury Department, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the Office of the Controller of the Currency, which oversees banks. And that's on top of the, the uh, law enforcement agencies like DOJ and and other, uh, other authorities. And look, I think there's some broad principles to keep in mind. Um, it's important whether you're talking about regulation of stable coins or regulation of crypto as a whole, is that the regulation be focused on the problem that you're trying to solve. The problem that the presidential working group was primarily focused on, I think, was on the, the, the notion of a run on the banks. Yeah. That if you have 
stablecoin issuers with reserves that are not regulated um, or validated in some way, that you put uh, the holders of those stablecoins at risk, that the reserves won't be there when they choose to redeem their coins. There are a lot of ways to address that that don't require stablecoin issuers to be regulated as banks, by the way. But um, but that's the that's the issue that they're trying to, to get at. Um, a lot of the the attention that the that the report got and that uh, that cryptocurrencies get generally is uh, because people misassociate it. Um, I think I just made up a word on your podcast, but people incorrectly <laughs> associate it with crime. Um, and as we'll talk about when we talk about the Blockchain Alliance, the group that you mentioned a few minutes ago, cryptocurrencies are actually friendlier to cops than they are to criminals. And uh, and they are an incredibly valuable tool for law enforcement and for compliance officers in combating financial crime. And stablecoins are no exception. So I think that you can have all of the objectives that the working group is interested in, protection of consumers, prevention and detection of financial crime, protection of the safety and soundness of the financial system. Those things are not inconsistent with each other. And you can have all of them. Um, and you can generate tremendous benefits for uh, from a compliance perspective, consumer uh, protection perspective, uh, law enforcement and security perspective, as long as the regulation is actually tailored to the problem it's, it's intended to solve. Now, that's very interesting, Jason. Thanks so much for, for that insight. Now, I, I know that some in the crypto community are getting, getting a little nervous um, hearing the statement that uh, crypto is, is not so much for crime, it's actually better for, for law enforcement and authorities. Uh, can you can you delve into that a little more deeply? And also, I I want to attach another question to that, um, which is one of the the core tenets of crypto uh, in the crypto community is that you should have uncensorable financial transactions. Uh, and the way that we currently ensure that uh, is by allowing for these decentralized systems to proliferate. So there's no single point uh, at which a financial transaction can be shut down, um, but also that the counterparties in these financial transactions are going to remain anonymous. Uh, so I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how long uh, that anonymity can be enjoyed by the crypto community and how it dovetails uh, with some objectives that regulators might have uh, in terms of using crypto for their own purposes. So this is Alan. And I think <clears throat> one of the things that it's important to keep in mind, and I think this is foundational to this entire ecosystem, is that one of the core tenets that it that this ecosystem was founded on is transparency. And in fact, the trust in these, in these protocols uh, and in the applications built on the protocols uh, and in the tokens that represent value that get transmitted is that transparency is substituted for central ledger keeping. And so that transparency prevents things like theft, misallocation, um, uh, you know, and other types of activities where either a central ledger keeper or private parties can defraud uh, or steal from each other um, or can undermine the integrity uh, of a network. Now, what comes along with that transparency is that it's transparent for everybody. It's transparent for the users. It's transparent for those who are considering using it's, it's transparent for those who are going to build technology and it's transparent for governments um, as they you know can watch 
you know, transactions take place uh, on various types of protocols. And that, so that transparency, in a sense, you know, is neither good nor bad, it is. Um, and it's transparent for everyone. Um, and so that sets a baseline. I think the second thing that's important to keep in mind is that uh, cryptocurrency, for lack of a better kind of catch-all term, is, uh, and the use of cryptocurrency is not anonymous. It's pseudonymous, right? Um, everyone trades, everyone, everyone's wallet is in, is in a sense a mask over their face, uh, but all those masks are unique. Uh, and, so, and so that pseudonymity allows you to protect confidentiality. And in fact, different types of applications build different layers of pseudonymity into uh, their protocols. But for the most part, there's an understanding at the end of the day that transactions are not anonymous. Um, it's just that that type of in, that type of identifying information is stripped out of the out of the, the base layer of the transaction, um, and then is is made known or provided via different mechanisms and means, so that individuals or entities know who they're trading with, uh, or that protocols or networks or companies know um, who it is that they are uh, that they are interacting with. So I think those two principles are really important. To keep in mind, um, and you know, we we are very much believers in the the base basic principles of the technology as really representing dramatic innovation um, for financial services and for a range of other applications. But the core principles and aspects and characteristics of the technology don't exist solely for one particular community of users or another particular community of users, they are intrinsic in the design of the technology and that makes them available to anyone who's looking to, to, to examine, to use, to, to benefit from the technology. Fantastic. I, I think that's a really wonderful reminder, Alan, to the crypto community, uh, but also to anyone who's interested in the crypto community about what this technology is, is all about at the end of the day. Uh, so I, I'm hoping to, to pose a question to both of you um, based on a recent conversation I had with uh, the Bank of International Settlements. Um, so for, for our listeners, the Bank of International Settlements is sort of a, a global coordinator, if you will, between the different uh, national central banks. And they're obviously very interested in stable coins and the adoption of stable coins, um, particularly as it relates to uh, ambitions for CBDC, so central bank digital currencies, which can be stable coins, um, but oftentimes they are contemplated as, as just digital currencies, so uh, not blockchain based tokens, in other words. Uh, but the reservation um, that BIS currently has with respect to stable coins is whether um, they are fundamentally uh, incompatible with the global AML framework uh, that the U.S. has put together. So I, I hate to put both of you on the spot, um, but I, I'm sure that our listeners would love to learn your opinions on whether uh, it can be compatible at the end of the day 
um, or what we do in the crypto community can be compatible with uh, robust AML KYC. And it sounds like, Alan, from your response that um, it's, it's just a technology platform and therefore the answer should in theory be yes, it is pseudonymous, that's, that's, that's absolutely correct. And so we can make it compatible uh, with financial regulation. Uh, but nevertheless, this, this is a question uh, that has proliferated in the crypto community, but also among financial regulators who are looking at um, the increasing adoption of stable coins. So what, what are your thoughts on that? So this is Alan, and I'll start. And, and I think it's a really, it's an important question. It reminds me, uh, and I would imagine Jason had a similar experience. You know, when I was in the government um, at Homeland Security, we looked at a variety of types of financial crimes using a variety of types of instruments. And obviously, a lot, there's a lot of comparison, and I'm sure the Bank of International Settlements is very focused um, on, and, and we know they, they, they make the comparisons a lot, to the um, electronic banking systems that proliferate around you know, much of, for lack of a better term, the, the developed world. But when, when we were looking at, at financially, financial crimes or crimes involving financial assets or, or the proceeds of crime. Um, electronic banking and, 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 and digital wires and things of that nature were just one part of the, of, the, of the mosaic. Other pieces were bulk cash smuggling, different types of peer-to-peer -peer cash handling networks, um, ca pure cash transactions. And other things where there isn't nearly the same level of, of, of knowledge base and potentially you know, integrity that there is in the, uh, in the banking system as it sits right now. Second, unfortunately, as we see from the news, the, the banking system itself is not immune from misuse or money laundering or um, other types of activities involving the proceeds of crime. And so I think we're all, I, I think the, 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 the anti-money laundering structure that the U.S. has been a, a champion of and that we see reflected at, at the, with the Financial Action Task Force and others is still a work in progress for, for the traditional financial system. So then we look at crypto assets and whether that's stable coins or floating value uh, cryptocurrencies. And what's interesting is, of course, anti-money laundering regulations of the type that the U.S. have put into place are different than currency controls like we see enacted by certain countries. Currency controls are limits on the use of certain types of instruments uh, or the, the movement of money in and out and across borders and prohibitions. And that's not the anti-money laundering system that the U.S. put in place. Instead, the U.S. places, the U.S. system that's been you know, a, a model and that others follow, um, places obligations on entities that handle different types of financial value, instruments of financial value. That may be banks, uh, that may be other, that may be exchanges of different types, that may be money brokers and other types of money services businesses. Um, but the obligation is really on the individuals and entities that are handling those assets um, and what responsibilities they have around things like knowing their customers, knowing their counterparties, um, taking reasonable steps, 
uh, and risk-based steps in order to make sure that they are not um, engaging in criminality, fostering criminality, criminality, aiding and abetting criminality. So, one, and one of the things that's striking about the system is if you think about this, if you, if, if individual A brings a suitcase full of cash to bank X and says, I'd like to open an account. What that, what the bank does is the bank gathers in a, a lot of information about the identity of the person presenting themselves with the cash. And then they ask that person questions um, about the provenance of that cash. But because the individual can really represent whatever they want about the provenance of the cash, really the system relies on the identity of the holder as a proxy for the provenance of the value. And one of the striking things about cryptocurrency, whether that's stable coins or floating value cryptocurrency, is that a compliance operation doesn't need to do that. A financial institution or other entity with obligations does not need to rely on the identity of the holder to understand the provenance of the, of the asset. Instead, you can break that into two parts. Number one, you can do traditional types of know your customer checks on the individual presenting themselves to understand who that individual is um, and whether that's an individual that you want to do business with. But of course, remember that in the, in the non-crypto world, in the regular world, the individual presenting themselves at Bank X may or may not be the actual owner of that value, the person benefiting from that value. Um, they're just the person who happens to be holding the asset when they present themselves. But then second, with crypto assets, you can use tools, um, asset tracing, you know, pro, um, transaction tracing tools developed by companies like Chainalysis and Elliptic and TRM Labs and a whole host of others um, to understand the provenance of the assets separate and apart from the identity of the, the individual who's presenting themselves. And so you can look back at the chain of transactions that led to the presentation value to a wallet held by an entity you know, that has a compliance obligation and say, well, okay, I, I, see where the, I see that the individual presenting themselves has a wallet that holds this value, but let me peer behind that. Where did that value come from? Do I know anything about the wallet or wallets that that value came from? And then do I know anything about the, the wallet or wallets that, that, that resulted in those wallets having that value. And do, do I know anything about those individual wallets? Do I know anything about how, uh, you know, how those wallets interact with other wallets? Do I, does anything about the clustering of those transactions give me more insight into the provenance of these funds separate and apart from the identity of the individual presenting themselves? And so I think this is where, and this goes back to the comment that Jason made at the beginning, that cryptocurrency, stable coins or floating value uh, tokens, actually give compliance operations, compliance officers, uh, institutions with compliance obligations, you know, additional insights and additional ways to look at both the identity of an asset holder as well as the provenance of, of funds or value in ways that the various types 
of financial instruments may be presented to uh, a bank don't exist. Likewise, you know, one of the most uh, frustrating or difficult things that would happen with respect to um, different the proceeds of crime, right, is when cash disappears off of the um, uh, off of kind of the tracking system. And so this was all we used to talk about the fact that a lot of what the Coast Guard and Customs and Border Protection did was they kind of stood with their back to the United States, looking out, trying to prevent things, bad things from coming in. When in fact, sometimes you needed to turn around and look for the proceeds of bad actions flowing out, either through bulk cash smuggling, stored value instruments, um, other types of assets like used cars, um, uh, cigarettes, um, all sorts of different things. And those were ways in which cash fell off the radar screen in a, sense, in a sense and became difficult to track, where cryptocurrency and crypto assets give, gives compliance entities, law enforcement agencies, regulators, the potential for more visibility and the, and the, and the idea that transactions never really drop off of the, the radar screen unless, and I think this is an asterisk that we'll talk about later, unless the regulatory environment is so strict and severe that it drives those types of transactions into networks of wallets that never interact with, um, with those regulated entities. And so that it's very difficult to understand anything about the owners of those wallets and the provenance of that. So if, if I can add just a couple of things, building on what Alan said, to use Alan's hypothetical about the person who shows up at the bank with a suitcase of cash, if that cash is cryptocurrency instead of cash, it's as if you know the entire life story of every one of those dollars. So you know not just what the individual said about his or her own identity, but you also know the life history of, of those dollars, where they came from, where who else handled them, um, if someone, you know, uh, someone, uh, uh, malicious actor handled them, how many hops away from the person standing in front of you at the bank, uh, those transactions were. And because of the ability to cluster uh, wallets uh, using these powerful analytics tools from the companies Alan mentioned or CypherTrace, Blockchain Intelligence Group, Bithuri Crystal, there, there are a number of other companies that have equally robust tools that allow you to identify not just the transactions in uh, involving the cash that that person brought in, but other transactions that that person has conducted with other wallets uh, at, at other times. And so you, what you have is a circumstance in which the, the myth and the reality could not be more different. The myth is that cryptocurrency companies are not regulated and that cryptocurrency is somehow antithetical to the idea of AML, uh, robust AML enforcement, when the opposite is true. Cryptocurrency exchanges, all the brand name ones that you've heard of, stablecoin issuers, crypto payments companies are, are all, uh, all have AML programs. And there are AML programs and their sanctions compliance programs. I would put up against the AML and sanctions compliance programs at every big bank you've ever heard of. In fact, the Justice Department could probably have an entire unit devoted just to pursuing AML and sanctions violations against some of the biggest banks in the world, uh, many of which are, are repeat customers or repeat offenders, I should say because they've committed or had to admit to committing sanctions and AML violations over and over and over again. And that those are in the traditional financial realm. 
But these crypto exchanges and other companies that make great use of the kind of tools that Alan described have built programs that allow them to, to meet their obligations. And those that are registered with FinCEN are required to comply with the Bank Secrecy Act. They're required to have uh, all the same type of AML and KYC infrastructure that traditional financial institutions have. And they're subject to the same type of oversight. And, and what we have found is that, um, is that they have capitalized on the advantages that cryptocurrencies provide them to make sure that they know their customer. They have to know their customer just like a traditional bank. They know a hell of a lot more about their customer and what their customer has been engaged in than a, than a, a customer who's engaging in fiat transactions. And that's because of the features of the, of the technology that Alan mentioned, the, uh, or referenced, the, the fact that it's traceable, um, the fact that the, the records never go away, the blockchain, it's all there on the blockchain and it's all there for all time. It's also searchable, and that's why these forensic tools are so powerful. And so it's it's something that all policymakers need to understand. And we have found is it's a never-ending job to try to educate policymakers about that. That um, these are compliant, regulated entities um, that have incredibly robust tools at their disposal that they use effectively to make sure that they're compliant. For those of you just tuning in, welcome. This is the Global Public Policy Podcast at the Stanford Program in Law, Science, and Technology. And we're very lucky to have with us today Jason Weinstein and Alan Cohn from the law firm Stepto in Washington, D.C. Wow. Um, thank you so much for that, uh, both Jason and Alan. I mean, incredible amount of information there that I'm sure a lot of our listeners, particularly in the crypto space, are hearing for the first time. Uh, and, and that was really, really enlightening. So if I could sort of summarize uh, what, what both of you have said, I'll, I'll try. I mean, there's was, was a lot of great information in there. Um, but if I could sort of summarize that and then take us in a, a slightly new direction, it, it seems to be the case that you're suggesting um, that uh, in, that cryptocurrency as an issue for um, uh, uh, financial uh, crime prevention um, or regulation of um, of financial activity is 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 actually not a, a true issue um, because what's happening in the market is that uh, these platforms or these companies, these projects that are subjecting themselves uh, to some form of regulation as opposed to avoiding it. Uh, are the platforms that a lot of people end up preferring anyway, um, because even in the crypto space, people would like to have a credible uh, place to go for their financial services. Uh, and so in many ways, both the market and the regulators have worked towards um, uh, concentrating uh, a lot of these major categories of financial services in crypto to these platforms that are compliant. Um, there are some uh, you know, die-hard crypto believers uh, who are, are trying to skirt that sort of um, <clears throat> excuse me skirt that sort of uh, industry structure uh, by decentralizing more and more of these financial services. So, for somebody like Circle, for instance, very big issuer uh, of stablecoins is USDC. Uh, they can comply uh, with requirements to get a bank charter um, or to be regulated in a bank-like manner. Uh, however, uh, a project like uh, SUSD um, or um, LUSD, uh, these are uh, completely decentralized stablecoin projects where uh, the team is, uh, well, 
they're pseudonymous in the sense that uh, those in the industry who are familiar with these tools, they, they know who their colleagues are. Uh, and so we, we know the people behind the projects, uh, but there is no front end. Um, there, there is no user interface with which uh, others can interact with this, um, this protocol for issuing stable coins. And that is deliberate. Uh, the purpose of that is to decentralize as much as possible so that uh, no one um, person or entity who is issuing these stable coins can be subjected to regulation. Uh, and so you, you're starting to see more and more of that happening uh, in, in the crypto space. But having said that, you're right, that the dominant exchanges, stablecoin issuers and platforms uh, are uh, still dominating the, the market uh, and, and will for some time. And those are the parties that are talking to the regulators and trying their best to be compliant. Um, so let's, let's shift this a little bit because it, it sounds uh, to me like the financial crime aspect of crypto is a solvable problem uh, as long as we get the right flow of information going. Uh, so let's talk about another challenge that crypto poses to, uh, to regulators, and that is in the realm of financial stability. And that is where we, we start to get more into issues around um, what, uh, what Treasury is looking at in terms of stability and market regulation, what uh, the Fed is looking at, uh, and probably uh, most significantly, what uh, Chair Gensler at the SEC is looking at. Um, so let's, let's talk about the SEC for, for a bit, because that um, organization has probably been the highest touch point so far. Uh, with the crypto community. And uh, Chair Gary Gensler has made it clear that this is a big area of focus for him. So far, we've seen uh, an enforcement strategy coming from the SEC, which means that uh, the SEC has the ability to, uh, to sue, yes, um, but also to pursue criminal actions uh, against uh, infringing parties. And uh, so they have used that power uh, to go after individual projects, individual actors uh, who are violating securities law. Uh, the hope for the industry, and I'm sure for the SEC as well, is to start moving to a more rules-based regime. Uh, and that helps with predictability um, of regulation, with the process, so just clarity of thinking around how this space should be regulated. So in your estimation, uh, given all your experience and your interactions uh, with uh, the SEC on behalf of your clients, how close do you think the SEC is uh, to moving to a more rules-based approach? Uh, and also, is my assumption correct that that should be the approach that the SEC uh, take um, with respect to crypto regulation? Uh, or, or is uh, is Chair Gensler content um, to continue with enforcement for the foreseeable future and hope that uh, the crypto industry is uh, is able to take the right lessons uh, from these examples that he makes of certain projects in in our community? So this is Alan, and I'll, I'll start on that. Um, you know, first of all, I, I think you're exactly right. The solution to this question about securities regulation in this space lies in notice and comment rulemaking and in clear left and right boundaries and expectations. Uh, and then, you know, a, a, a supervision and governance regime that makes sense and meets the, you know, the appropriate ends of the appropriate regulators. I think the, the SEC has struggled with a couple of challenges. First, I mean, the SEC has some extremely knowledgeable people who 
are doing an extremely good job of engaging with the industry and understanding the industry. However, as an agency, they fell behind early and it's been very difficult for them to catch up. If you compare the, the, the SEC's approach in the 2014, 2015 timeframe, which was, let's just hope this goes away, to the approach that was taken by, by various treasury agencies, by FinCEN, by the IRS, you see um, you know, the IRS trying to just state some basic principles. Cryptocurrency should be treated as property for tax purposes. Is that a perfect solution? No. Does that answer every question that's out there about cryptocurrency? No. Does it give you a basic place to start? Yes. And does it give you a body of precedent outside the cryptocurrency area from which to start with to understand how to apply basic tax principles to cryptocurrency? Yes. It's definitely a work in progress, but it's a starting point that starts with a set of boundaries. FinCEN has gone even further in addition to, to saying, look, um, cryptocurrency is meant to act in a manner similar to currency. We have regulations regarding uh, entities that handle currency, follow those regulations. Um, and then issuing a steady stream of guidance um, beginning in 2013, 14 and continuing to today that is internally consistent. It builds upon itself and it tries to answer some of the bigger questions so that there is clarity. Does that mean that everybody agrees with everything they say? No. Does that mean that everything they've said answers every question? No. Does that mean that there are not serious enforcement actions uh, that have taken place between 2013 and today led by FinCEN? No, absolutely not. They have been, you know, at the forefront of some really important investigations. Uh, the BTCE case comes to mind uh, as, you, you know, having unique tools to go after entities, uh, unregistered exchanges that don't follow um, uh, KYC and AML practices and become havens for criminal activity. Um, but overall, their approach has been one of let's set boundaries Let's stay in touch with the industry. Let's, let's make sure that there's an information flow uh, from industry and let's make sure we understand this technology and try to continue to fill in the gap. The SEC is somewhat hostage to its own kind of principles over time that they really wanna be able to adjudicate individual matters on a case-by-case -case basis. They wanna be able to, to look at each project individually as the position they took at the outset um, and, it, and I think it hindered them from drawing broader conclusions and giving broader guidance to the industry at large. What is, why is Bitcoin kind of seen a particular way based on public statements and speeches, not even actual guidance? Does that apply to Purecoin and Litecoin and, and other similarly kind of mined out cryptocurrencies with atomized government governance? We don't know. You know, why is Ether and Ethereum different from Stellar? Why is it different from other types of cryptocurrencies that have similar coding, similar structures, similar governance? Um, what's, what's the underlying rationale for that? And, and, and are those to be treated the same or differently? And so I think they've, they're 
they're held hostage by their resistance to notice and comment rulemaking. And so unfortunately, that leads them to regulation by enforcement because it's easier. Um, it's easier because you can pick a target and you can go after it. And in some of the early, uh, you know, they were very good at going after Ponzi schemes and, and basic types of securities fraud that was going on in crypto that, that, um, uh, that is similar to financial crime in other areas. But that was of limited utility because pretty, pretty much everybody in the industry knew what Ponzi schemes and financial crime looked like in the, in, in the investor protection area. It left on the table the harder questions of, just like in the startup world generally, you know, what about companies that just fail? They're, they're good ideas, but they, they don't succeed in, in reaching their, the, the, the potential or the vision of the, of the, um, of the founders. Like what, is that criminal? Is that, uh, is that civilly incorrect? Or is that just the marketplace? Um, and so the questions that have swirled around uh, whether something is an investment contract, whether any amount of capital formation in a project makes the entire project an investment contract and therefore security. You know, these are, these are the questions that sit at the, at the heart of the issue that's causing the, the confusion. And that's what um, the SEC has just been resistant to addressing via notice and comment rulemaking or other mechanisms that similar to FinCEN issuing guidance that is not just kind of thousands of factors, but here's the left-hand boundary, here's the right-hand boundary, here's some basic rules for the middle, and we're going to continue to figure it out. I think the other thing that's important on the, in the, especially with respect to the security space, is we seem to be wrestling with this question that fundamentally question number one is, are these assets securities or not? And I think it, it even goes to, to, to the way that the question was framed, that the SEC is, is trying to take a stand on financial stability um, or market protection. But remember, the charge of the SEC is twofold, right? It's to protect investors, and it's to ensure the integrity of the trading of securities, equities, debt, et cetera. It is not the nation's overall market integrity regulator, and it's not the nation's consumer protection regulator. It has a specific and important charge, but that charge is no more or less important than the charge about ensuring the integrity of our currency transaction system or our taxation system or the trading and, and exchanges of uh, commodities and derivatives or the the protection of individual consumers. And remember, in a, uh, in, a, in a crypto project, it's different, right, than in a company, in a startup company where you have a company that issues equity and you have its investors who seek, who, who, uh, for whom we try to extend protection. There's a third category of, of, of person or entity in the crypto space, which is the user, the consumer. Um, and their interests don't always align with the investor. In fact, the SEC privileges the investor over the consumer because they are most concerned with the protection that the investor gets by dint either of the agreements that the investor signs 
or the statutory protections that are given for investors in projects. And so at the end of the day, the investors may be more privileged, may be privileged over the consumers. We, I think that, that it's important to remember that, that consumer protection, currency integrity, taxation, all of these are, important, are equally important public policy goals. And that we already see tensions between investors and users, healthy tensions, important tensions, but they are different participants in this ecosystem. And so to try to shoehorn everything into investor protection and to assume that investor protection and securities market integrity equals consumer protection and financial instrument market integrity, I think is, is, is stretching an analogy and it's distorting how the SEC goes about its core job of applying investor protection um, uh, principles and market integrity principles to the actual securities, debt instrument, and capital formation elements of the crypto asset of the crypto industry. Thanks so much, Alan. A terrific overview there uh, of SEC crypto regulation approach so far uh, and what it should be. And I completely agree with you that uh, in terms of going away from the the traditional notice and comment procedure for. Um, for making rules uh, and favoring instead an, an enforcement approach, it's really put the industry on high alert. And that's not to say that anytime uh, there's industry pushback uh, or there uh, is an industry effort to get around regulation that regulators have to change their approach. I mean, this is just the natural push pull of things. Uh, but I, I do think that the approach the SEC has taken so far has accelerated a lot of the um, technologies in crypto and a lot of the innovation in crypto uh, to try to protect uh, what crypto is all about at the end of the day, uh, when we feel as though as sometimes regulators are, are not quite understanding. Uh, so in, in the time that we have remaining, I, I'd love to uh, take your answer, Alan, and, and use it as a jumping off point to another big topic that I think both of you will have a lot of insight into, uh, which is what uh, does it mean to have a crypto project that's not quite a company um, and not quite a corporate uh, a corporate structure that we have seen before? And that is all sorts of implications for, for many, many things. Uh, so if you don't have a CEO, for instance, or if you don't have a CFO, I mean, these are the two most important um, uh, reporting functions, if you will, uh, in a lot of uh, the SEC's um, uh, regulations, uh, but also in, in any sort of um, uh, market regulation. Uh, and there are a lot of things wrapped up in those roles as well with respect to fiduciary duties, uh, as is the case for officers and directors in, in most corporations. Uh, what happens when you can't identify uh, who exactly has a fiduciary duty to this project? Does it make sense? Uh, for, for people to be saddled with that, and if so, for how long. Um, and if you can't identify those actors, then if something goes wrong, um, who, who exactly do you 
do you go after um, for any number of investigations that the SEC has opened uh, or that other market regulators uh, could, could open into these projects? Who exactly do you serve notice to? Uh, and does that notice stick? Uh, so it's, it's interesting to think about how we can even interact with these projects as regulators uh, when many of them are aggressively decentralizing uh, and moving towards uh, a term that I, I'm sure our listeners will be familiar with, which is the um, Decentralized Autonomous Organization, the DAO. Uh, so DAO law uh, is, for the moment, very similar to, um, to traditional corporate law, uh, if you will, just because uh, th there hasn't been an effort so far to try to come up with a separate set of laws uh, for, for this kind of organization. Um, but that's coming. I, I suspect that the, the armies of lawyers um, who are working on this problem are going to, to come up um, with some legal structures that make sense. But uh, my question is, you know, how should regulators be thinking about this new kind of project um, that is emerging and takes on the scale of uh, a company? Uh, and is it in the end going to look very different from what we currently have uh, in how corporations are, are organized? Um, and if so, uh, how, how would regulators be interacting with private industry um, if it's the case that, that these organizations are going to look so different uh, from what regulators are used to? So this is Alan and I'll, I'll start. I think those, those are really important questions. And of course, you know, that is very much kind of the cutting edge today of where, of where things stand. And it's one of the exciting things about working in this space is that that cutting edge moves so quickly. And so I think you do see some efforts. You saw the state of Wyoming um, uh, create a legislative frame, a, a legislative home or a legislative categorization for DAOs that, that look essentially basically a variant of, a, of the LLC structure, which is good for some purposes like governance and, but challenging for other purposes like taxation and, and things of that nature. Um, uh, Andreessen Horowitz and their policy papers advanced uh, you know, a different model of uh, maybe thinking, conceptualizing of a DAO as an unincorporated association, um, which uh, kind of moves the ball down the field in a number of ways for different aspects, but it's still kind of you know, not a perfectly fitting shoe. Um, but I do think this conversation, you know, the, the way we talk about it that way, we forget, we lose sight in a sense of, of, of what we're trying to do. And I think we need to kind of scroll backwards a little bit so we don't put the cart before the horse. What functions are being performed that implicate the public policy responses, the, the, the public policy imperatives that we care about as a nation and that, that, and that therefore certain different agencies are charged with overseeing. We've, we've kind of, it's interesting, we, we think about the CEO and the CFO, but the CFO is a, re, is a relatively new corporate officer. Um, it, and and I, I remember looking at this in a different context in government um, because the CFO takes on a number of different responsibilities in uh, in industry that look like the strategy and policy responsibilities that a government agency undertakes. Um, and in trying to, uh, to, to take that apart, 
um, the CFO position, I think, only dates back to basically the 1970s. Um, but I may be wrong uh, in that. So, but the point being, what are, what are we talking about that we really are caring about? What functions are being carried out that we care about? So there's governance. Who's making decisions about the direction that an entity takes? When, when we look at a corporation, there's the board, there's the officers, you know, the directors and officers, there's the shareholders, um, that's corporate form. In a DAO, for example, where do those functions lie? In kind of an idealized DAO, in a, in a platonic DAO, right? Governance is in the hands of the community of, of uh, the community as represented by, in many instances, the holders of governance tokens or tokens of governance rights, okay. So, so what do we want to make sure that we understand that what have we always concerned ourselves with with governance of other than closely held entities? Well, we want to understand, we want to be able to understand who votes, how they vote, what their interests are, uh, et cetera. So then we can start to say, okay, well, what does that mean about a DAO structure? What does that mean in terms of, say, disclosures that need to be made about, you know, are there holders of governance tokens above a certain threshold? And if so, then, then you need, you know, those holders need to identify themselves or, um, uh, you know, other types of, uh, of disclosure type requirements so that individuals or entities can understand more about the entity that they're dealing with. Um, maybe financial management. Uh, so many of the DAOs are, are ending up with treasuries of highly valuable tokens. So there needs to be transparency around those treasuries. There needs to be some type of understanding and accounting for their management. There may even be a taxation for taxable transactions involving the treasury that are voted on through the governance structure. You know, how are those, you know, is it, is it sufficient to record those on the blockchain? Does the, does the protocol need to be coded in a way that, um, you know, that, that, the, that those transactions can be accounted or can be submitted to tax authorities, can be that, that tax payments can be made. Can that be done in an automated fashion? Does there need to be a human or an entity that is designated, contracted, or otherwise engaged by a DAO to, to, to take on those functions? And then of course, if we walk back from there, and this is what every agencies from FinCEN to SEC and others are saying is, well, how many DAOs are really that platonic version of the DAO? versus how many of them are, for lack of a better term, proto-DAOs that are actually, you know, being governed in whole or in part by a founding team or a for-profit entity or a foundation or something else. Um, and what is the split of responsibilities between those entities? And where is a line that we can be comfortable with between, you know, up till this line, it's really the founding team or the, or the for-profit entity, the foundation that has the disclosure or the tax payment or other types of responsibilities, um, anti-money laundering, sanctions compliance, and where does it switch over to, this is a, you know, more like an unincorporated association, this is a, this is a community governed enterprise. And so that's a different type of disclosure regime and enforcement regime. It reminds me, um, you know, somebody 
in describing the SEC's approach to Bitcoin and Ether said that they understand the differences uh, in their governance structures and that in a sense, Bitcoin governance is atomized, spread among all the, the, the miners of, of, um, of Bitcoin. And in a certain sense, that makes it more purely decentralized. But Ethereum uses a foundation um, as, as kind of a, a um, you know, a place where governance takes place, almost a centralized hub of decentralization. And although that's less, less decentralized, it's more comfortable to a regulator because there's a neck to put an, a hand around and to ring and to keep accountable. But I think we have to fight that temptation because that can lead to some perverse outcomes. And instead we need to say, okay, what are the imperatives that we're trying to protect? Now let's look at decentralized organizations as they're intended and as they are. And how do we go about, you know, where do certain functions lie? And how do we go about constructing a set of either, some of them will be new rules, some of them will just be guidance for the application of existing rules, some of it will be the allocation of responsibilities across, across entities or agencies or regulators or, um, or others, so that we can achieve the public policy goals that we're trying to achieve, right? Investor protection, market integrity, consumer protection, uh, taxation, you know, uh, other things of that nature in a manner that's not just appropriate for the technology, but as we were talking about way back at the beginning of this conversation with respect to anti-money laundering and financial crime, in ways that take advantage of the unique characteristics of the technology so that we can best meet those public policy goals not just shoehorn the technology into rules that we have now or ways of thinking of that we have now because we're more comfortable with it. And that, that, this is Jason, that analytical approach is all too lacking in the way people are approaching, not just DAOs, but, but other innovations in this kind of Web3 world that we're now uh, entering. And, you know, as reflected in Alan's answer, uh, the appropriate way to, to regulate here, and we'll focus on DAOs since that's, that's what the question's about, is not just trying to fit a round peg in a square hole or a new peg in an old hole, um, but to actually focus on the function, not the form, and to ask yourself what it does, how does it do it, and what's the policy goal, the, the policy objective uh, that's implemented or that's implicated by that, and then how do we address it? And that kind of thoughtful uh, analysis, some of which, as Alan said, will involve guidance for existing rules application of existing rules, but some of it no doubt will involve writing new rules, is the kind of process we should be undergoing. And we should be undergoing it in collaboration with industry and government, not in an adversarial way. Because uh, as Alan said, the, the technology has advantages uh, in achieving these regulatory objectives. We just have to teach the regulators how to take advantage of those advantages. And the best way to do that is for industry and government to work together, um, because there is a, a that there should be a sense of common purpose. The companies that that we deal with, and the Blockchain Alliance or otherwise through our travels in the space, are good companies that want to color within the lines. They just want someone to tell them where the lines are, or approximately where the lines are. And I would add, there are many folks on the staff of the agencies that we deal with that want the exact same thing, that understand the technology, that want to be able to give industry certainty, um, even if they understand that it's not going to be perfect at the first, the first go round, 
And then we're going to have to be engaged in a long process of figuring out, you know, adjusting the answers and filling in the gaps. But I think they recognize too, because they understand the technology and they engage with the industry, you know, that, that we're caught in some unproductive, um, uh, in some unproductive loops with respect to some of this. And that there's a, that, that really we need to be grappling with exactly the, the question that you posed, which is emerging ways in which this technology is evolving and not scrapping over individual projects or, or you know, things that happened five years ago that, that maybe have just been overtaken by events and are interfering with our ability to get to a place where, again, as, as Jason said, there can be lines, entities can color within those lines, uh, and, we can, and we can then look to, you know, to adjust and perfect the, the system from there. Fantastic. Alan, Jason, thank you so much for, for those wonderful insights. And uh, I, I think for many, many people in Washington, D.C. Uh, and in uh, financial regulatory centers across the world and in the industry, we're nodding along uh, as, as you were talking about how it is that we should be thinking about crypto regulation in a broader sense and also the um, the objectives that crypto projects are trying to achieve uh, and how regulators should be working with those objectives as opposed to trying to shoehorn um, activities into old ways of thinking about, uh, about finance uh, and how uh, corporate entities interact with one another. So that that's fantastic. And I, I think that's a great note to, to end on, um, a very optimistic note and uh, informative note going forward. Uh, for, for us all to, to think about how, how we proceed from here. Last year was uh, the year in which crypto policy really woke up. I mean, there have been a lot of interactions with regulators before that, but because uh, the infrastructure bill uh, in July had contemplated uh, having validators, software developers, miners, uh, uh, report uh, in uh, probably an overly burdensome way uh, for for tax obligations. Uh, the the industry woke up, and uh, a lot of effort has gone into crypto policy um, since then. Uh, it'd be interesting to see uh, if that energy continues into this year. And I, I'm pleased to see that uh, that at least a lot of the resources that have been devoted to crypto policy by these projects, by investment funds, uh, others in this industry have uh, continued um, to be recruited uh, and continue to do good work. Uh, but what you, uh, Jason and Alan, do at Steptoes is so incredibly important, not just on behalf of your clients, but on behalf of the industry as a whole. I think the more that we can have these sorts of substantive discussions and very specific recommendations uh, for what regulators and uh, and industry should do, um, the, the more we'll get to the right outcomes. Um, so thank you both for your incredibly valuable time uh, and for all the insights. Uh, we've all learned a great deal and we look forward to having you on again soon. That would be great. Uh, we enjoyed our time. Thank you so much for the invitation. Yeah, thank you for a great conversation. Thanks so much, guys. Once again, this has been the Global Public Policy Podcast at the Stanford Program in Law, Science, and Technology. We'll talk again next time when, I promise, we will discuss the metaverse and all the public policy considerations it brings up, including issues around identity, content moderation, and privacy. That wonderful music you're hearing is by the great Jason Fong. Thanks, everyone. Take care.